Welcome to Women Thriving Unapologetically with Lindsay McCowan. Over the next hour, you will hear raw, honest, and inspiring conversation between Lindsay and her guests, discussing how to thrive, live joyfully, and abundantly in spite of life's challenges. Now, here is your host, Lindsay McCowan. Hello, 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 and welcome to Women Thriving Unapologetically. I am your host, Lindsay McCowan, and it is a pleasure to be here again with you all. And so if you've been listening to Women Thriving Unapologetically, you know that we always start with a drop-in. So we take this opportunity, ladies, to stop whatever you're doing. And in this moment, just place your hands upon your body. And in this moment of pause, you are reclaiming your right to rest, to take a moment to step outside of the busyness of your life and reclaim this moment where you take a deep breath into your body, perhaps all the way down into your belly, and you feel the sacredness of your own breath, the sacredness of your own body. And in these moments, these small moments in which we pause, we truly are reclaiming our birthright to rest, to step outside of the stress, the constant doing, perhaps the constantly, the constant thoughts of feeling that we are not doing enough. And so these small pauses where we claim our breath, reclaim awareness of our bodies, we are pulling ourselves back inward, rooting ourselves back into our innate wisdom and trust. So let's take a nice collective breath in together and out together and feel ourselves settle into this space so that we can learn more tools and techniques of how we can break free of the stress cycle that keeps us bound to the feelings of not being good enough or doing enough. That keeps us in the state of overwhelm or anxiety, perhaps. And so you're welcome to stay here as long as you wish to continue to breathe with your hands on your body and listen to the remainder of the show, because we have an amazing guest today who's written a book on burnout and how we can release from the stress cycle. And our guest today is Amelia Nagoski. And she is incredible because she believes that wellness is not just a state of mind, but it's a state of action. And she's going to help us examine how we can unravel ourselves from the lies that we've been told about what wellness should like and instead create space for our lives to, to be really, truly free. And Amelia is a DMA, which stands for a doctorate of musical arts. And she's the co-author with her sister, Emily, of the New York Times bestselling book, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle, and also the burnout workbook that goes along with it. So her job is to, I love this part about her bio. She's like, her job is to run around waving her arms and making funny noises and generally doing whatever it takes to help singers get in touch with their internal experience. And so she lives in New England with her husband and her two rescue dogs. And you can find her online at burnoutbook.net. So that's burnoutbook.net. And so thank you, Amelia, for being here today with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah. And so I'm curious how a choral conductor came to write a book on burnout. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> it's it's confusing to me too. Um but the truth is that it was becoming a choral conductor pursuing my doctorate specifically that led me to my you know most intense experience of burnout. But luckily while I was getting my doctorate 
being hospitalized for stress-induced illness. Um, I have an identical twin sister who has a PhD in health science and was there to basically drive to the hospital as soon as she heard that I was, you know, in there. I was in the hospital for four days, my first go. And uh, she brought me just like stacks of research because this is how we express love in our family is peer-reviewed science. Uh, so she brought me all this science that she had used in her first book, um, Come As You Are, this, uh, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life, uh, by Emily Nagoski, PhD. Emily Nagoski, PhD, brought me science to show me why I had the kind of illness I was having and how to manage it. Um, and as I needed to learn more, we ended up looking at research from such far-flung fields, um, from sociology and psychology to biology, neurophysiology, uh, that it, I mean, the information saved my life. It kept me from, from dying from the stress I was experiencing. The pain was really terrible and the, you know, hospitalizations were very uncomfortable. Um, and I and I survived because I learned all this stuff from all these different, highly varied sources. And Emily was like, we need to write a book about this. And so that's where burnout came from. <laughs> Directly, kind of, from my experience of being and becoming a conductor. Because I am white and feminine bodied and uh, autistic in a field where... Uh, the only acceptable thing to be in classical music is is a a, a man, and uh, if you are dead, you get a lot more respect. And if you are tall and thin, um, that's even better because that's what we always imagine a conductor should look like. So, trying to <laughs> force without insulting anyone, you know, get all my professors to believe that I could be a person who was a conductor. Um, so so impossibly stressful. Um, the fact that I learned to get out of that at all alive with my mind intact was, was all due to what I learned from not my music studies, but my research about stress. Mm. And it's incredible that, you know, life really took you to this brink. I mean, I find oftentimes that we are kind of pushed into, um, a greater expansion, so to speak, and that we're pushed into things that we might not necessarily have once thought that we were capable of. And here you are writing a book on burnout through your own personal experience, not because, you know, it's something that you thought was trending and it'd be a good idea to do, but because you're like, oh my gosh, I've experienced this for myself and more people need to understand this. And so can you explain to our listeners what exactly is burnout? Because I don't think a lot of people are even really... They've, they're hearing a lot about it, but not necessarily understanding what it actually is. In the book, Emily and I define it as the experience of being overwhelmed and exhausted by everything you have to do, and yet somehow still worried you're not doing enough. There are clinical definitions that come from the original uh, research psychologist who defined and codified burnout. Um, he says it's a, a state induced by um, unmeetable goals and unceasing demands that manifest as emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and decreased sense of accomplishment. Those are the original three criteria. The WHO talks about burnout as a workplace experience because the WHO's job is to talk to governments about how they need to be keeping their citizens safe and healthy, and the government can manage 
what employers are required to do and how they're required to treat their employees. But the truth is that those unceasing demands and unmeetable goals come from so much more than work. Parenting for sure, um, existing as a person who does not conform to the arbitrary socially constructed ideal, the more you differ from the single definition of a kind of person who has access to power, the more you differ from that definition, the more likely you are to experience prejudices, microaggressions, harassment, etc. Um, and these just constant stressors are initiated in your body so commonly over and over again, um, that it's really hard to escape and and move back into a feeling of safety and security and calm. Um, you're always feeling vigilant because you don't conform to what the world wants you to be. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And listening to your definition, you and Amelia's definition of burnout versus uh, a clinical definition, there's a lot more people experiencing burnout than... Um, than they might realize. Because even though I have not been hospitalized for burnout or been, you know, clinically diagnosed as experiencing burnout, everything that you just listed, I have been experiencing on and off again for the past three years. And have been you feeling have just made a very important point. I want to point out that um, burnout is not a medical diagnosis, and it's not a mental illness. It's a it's a state that you're in due to what external circumstances do to you. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, in my external circumstances, which I put upon myself a lot because I, yeah, <laughs> which I because I am a business, I, I have a small business, I am the business owner, I am the business. And I've had this past three years been trying to create this thing. And then, and I had this realization this week, this thing has been killing me. I've been trying to birth this thing that I've been gestating for three years. And the gestation period is far too long and it's becoming toxic. And I keep going in and out of these states of where I just can't take it anymore. And I'm being feeling that the pressure from society society's beliefs of what success is supposed to look like, what my business should look like if it's successful, what I believe, you know, have been taught to be true about what success is, is killing me. And I yeah. just feel like I'm freaking tired of it. Yeah. And so how do we re redefine? I, I actually have a song about this. Is that okay? okay. I sing yes, I love that. Okay. This is a song called The Abyss. It's about the chasm that exists between who we are what we're capable of, what we want to be, versus what the world expects of us and who the world demands us to be. Okay. Okay. Who does the world say that I should be? And what do I do if I don't agree? Rational me says that I am enough. My primate brain says not fitting is rough. Solutions are clear, I should be myself And deal with the world when it puts me through hell Or easier still is to be what they say That only requires I give my soul away To the abyss, abyss To opposite goals here stand, ask you to choose Whichever you pick, there's something to lose But you're not alone, 
road and going together is a journey of hope through the abyss abyss mm, that was awesome <laughs> <laughs> giving your soul away to the abyss. Oh my God, that resonates so much because <laughs> it's just never ending and you just keep giving more and more and more of yourself to something that ha that just keeps sucking the life out of you. And you can, yeah. I think uh, in the Buddhist tradition, oftentimes it can be called the hungry ghost. You can never satiate the hungry ghost. Yeah. No matter how I much mean, you give it. But of course there are solutions. We're not just mm -hmm. stuck forever you know, facing the abyss and managing this sense of, of inability to be enough for everyone, mm -hmm. uh, even though we're trying as hard as we can. Um, one of the things that I suggest in the song is going together. We're not, we're, we're all in this together and we're going there. And just the fact that we're going together makes it a journey of hope because one of the solutions, the very practical solutions for managing the abyss is what we call in the book, The Bubble of Love, um, which is a circle of people who care about your well-being as much as they care about yours. You care about their well-being as much as they... Okay, hold on, starting over. <laughs> you, They care about your well-being as much as you care about theirs. That's the bubble of love, is those friends. And uh, the job of those friends and the purpose of that bubble is to remind each other that what the wider world demands is um, bull honky. It's hooey. That actually what you are already is worthy of love and care and resources. Um, and that the external world's expectations are, are invalid, are not yours. You don't have to conform to them in order to be safe and loved. I love this. this is a topic we touch on um, in different ways on, on uh, women thriving unapologetically. The sense of community is so important for women so that we realize that we're not separate, we're not alone, that we are going through this together. And a lot of the conditioned beliefs are, you know, I think you said bull hockey. I'd probably say bullshit. But <laughs> okay. I didn't know if I could go that far. It's okay. But... <laughs> um, we're not here to conform, right? So, and um <laughs> And also the sense of, you know, community is so important for us to understand that we, like, a lot of the beliefs that we're holding to be true are not really beliefs that support our true thriving. And thriving comes when we are in community together. Um, yeah, and a lot of the goals other. that we hold did not come from us. We think they came from us. We think they're our goals, but they've just been so in the mainstream thought that we adopt them as our own unconsciously and uh don't realize that oh wait a minute who decided i wanted that um i'm not sure that that is my real goal yeah and then what do we do when we realize oh that's not really even my goal it was someone else's in the best of circumstances you just go oh that's not my goal and you drop it and walk away and feel totally fine about it um but odds are you had that goal because the world has told you that you need to conform to that expectation in order to be worthy of love the least triggering example i can think of is the white kitchen 
I mean, I guess that's changing now. I guess like bright, colorful kitchens are the thing. But regardless, kind of HGTV and Instagram have all told us that, you know, a bright, white, spotless kitchen is required for you to have guests over. And if you're going to have company, you better have all of your dishes hidden away. You better have, you know, no appliances on the counter and certainly no crumbs, no <laughs> dust of any kind, because would you want to go to someone else's house where they had dust on their baseboard? Like, yes, of course, you'd be totally fine if your friend had dust on their baseboards. But you've been kind of suggested to you your whole life that the kind of cleanliness and perfection and new shininess that's required in order to make your space welcoming for other people, that kind of perfection is genuinely unachievable and um but because you've absorbed this unconsciously uh your brain wants to keep you safe it wants to keep you um in the middle of the herd and humans are a herd species uh, jonathan Haidt is a research um is a sociologist uh who talks about humans as 90 percent chimp 10% B. We are a hive species. We thrive in groups we're meant to. Our neurobiology does not stay within our skin. We are designed to be complete as our best selves, our most capable selves, when we are in groups, when we are connected to others. Uh, so there's a little voice that lives inside that abyss and says, you're not meeting the goals. You are not completing the unceasing demands. You need to get safe. You need to get over there. You need to conform to what they expect. You need to have a white kitchen. It needs to have zero appliances visible. Um, it has to look like you never actually cook, but you have to have a perfect meal set out at the same time. Um, uh, because that's what you've been told. And the purpose of the bubble of love is to override that voice and say, your house is perfect. You have avocado green countertops and a very old fridge and freezer that doesn't even have automatic defrost. And you know what? It's still a place we can gather and share a meal. It's, it's fine. You're allowed to have laundry sitting on the bed unfolded. That is allowed. And you know what? You're still lovable and you deserve to have you know, to feel that your home is welcoming because it is already. You don't need to conform to that. And they create your own little herd and you feel safe in the middle of that herd. Um, and that little voice that's criticizing you uh, is not an enemy. That little critical voice is trying to keep you safe. Uh, it just isn't aware that your own little herd is as valid as the big broad uber herd um, and that you know the instagram herd the the social media and magazine cover herd um and it thinks that that you have to conform to this larger herd because people who are on the fringes of the herd i mean physically in a herd when the lion comes they're the ones who get bit right being in the middle of the herd is the safest place to be um, so it's not that you are vain, it's not that you're, you know, gullible, it's not that you're stupid or a, a, sh a shallow conformist just because you want to be what you've been told you should be. It's 
It's not because you're not working hard enough or not smart enough. Um, it's because that's how humans are built and they're trying to be safe. Um, so uh, we learn that this other herd holds us and keeps us safe because practically in the actual real world, like in America, for example, if you are on the fringes, which is to say non-conforming to the socially constructed ideal, if you're not male or white or thin or English is your first language and you belong to a Christian church and I mean like every possible intersection of difference. Um, the more intersections you stand on, the more likely you are to be on the fringes, the more likely you are genuinely to be in danger from physical harm, from an inability to access resources that are necessary to survive in the white supremacist, heteronormative, exploitatively capitalistic patriarchy. Um, so it is also, it's a metaphor and it's your mind, but also it's a very literal. Um, so the bubble of love creates this this new herd that keeps you safe. I forgot what the question was because I feel like I went on kind of a rant, but... Uh... <laughs> no, it's beautiful. I mean, this idea of having this bubble of love, the sense of community and find, and it's not just to find another community where we're feeling like we have to conform into, but it's finding a community that allows us to really grow out and expand out of the conformity of the society at large. And so it's just the, a, more of a, a safe place, a sanctuary for us to be able to break free of a lot of the conformity is what I'm hearing you say. And I think it's a beautiful um, analogy that you gave uh, because there's so many of us that feel like things have to be perfect before we have friends over or have to be like, we have to be perfect in some other way before mm -hmm. we take any sort of risk in our life. And so it's important for us to understand that these ideals that are the, are, are, belief system, the patriarchal lens that all of us look through, um, even though we're trying not to look at it many of, through it for many of us, is that we have to uh, look a particular way, be a particular way to be worthy. And so we're constantly doing our best and we can do that better when we're in community to break free of that and start to view things in a completely different way. And so I really appreciate um I won't call it a rant. I just this your beautiful <laughs> your beautiful explanation of that. And we're actually up already to our first break of the show. So if you are listening, be sure to stay tuned because we're going to come back and maybe talk some more about you know what is the stress cycle and how do we break free of that and what are some of the things that we can do to really besides having that bubble of love that you give a lot of other examples in the book. So be sure to stay tuned and we'll be right back after this short break. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Women, are you tired of chasing after your dreams? Exhausted and overwhelmed from trying so hard to have the perfect life? Do you yearn for more ease, freedom, and time to explore what is near and dear to your heart, yet have no idea how to stop pushing forward? Join your host, Lindsay McCowan, and others like you on a journey to awaken the divine feminine. When you awaken the Divine Feminine, you awaken parts of yourself that have been ignored, lay dormant, put on the back burners, or forgotten. When you fully ignite these aspects of yourself, you awaken your ability to thrive in all areas of your life, including relationships, finances, health, career, and purpose. You stop chasing after life, 
and step into an easeful magnetic flow. You become the magnet that effortlessly attracts joy, love, space to play, abundance and magic that illuminates your life. Does that sound like the future you? Go to lindsay.tv slash goddess to sign up today. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You're listening to Women Thriving Unapologetically with Lindsay McCowan. Have a question for Lindsay or her guests? Want to share your story? Email Lindsay at thrivingunapologetically at gmail.com. That's thrivingunapologetically at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Here again is Lindsay. Hello and welcome back to Women Thriving Unapologetically. We're here today with Amelia Nagoski and we're talking about the stress cycle and how there's, there is a lot more stress on women, um, I believe, than on men. Um, and it's, or maybe I should say it's different. And one of the things that you talk about in your book, uh, you talk about the human giver syndrome and how this can contribute to the stress that women feel in their lives more different, a lot more differently than men's. Can you talk to us a little bit about what the human giver syndrome is? Yeah, we adapted this from a book called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, which is a book of moral philosophy by Kate Mann. She's a moral philosopher. And in this book, she posits a world where there are two kinds of humans. There are human beings who have a moral obligation. It's a book of moral philosophy. So the human beings have a moral obligation to be their humanity, to live it, to express it, to acquire whatever resources are necessary in order to accomplish that. And on the other hand, there are human givers who have a moral obligation to give their time, their lives, their bodies to the human beings. And remembering that this is a book called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, which group do you think she's saying <laughs> the women are? Yeah, it's the human givers. Um, but this is not just a gender dynamic. It's a power dynamic. So it happens across all the intersections. Um, uh, white people tend to feel entitled to the time, lives, and bodies of people of color. You know, people who speak the dominant language in the U.S., it's English, tend to feel entitled to the extra work of people who don't speak English as their first language. Um, so at every intersection, there's this feeling of a power dynamic of entitlement and, and moral obligation to give. Um, and a lot of people respond to the idea of human giver as like, yeah, I do feel more obligation to, to give to the people around me, to care for them, to support them. And indeed, being a human giver, if we were all human givers and the whole society was made up of people who feel a moral obligation to care for those around them, we would have a fantastic society. Nobody would burn out. Nobody would slip through the cracks because there would always be someone else there. Everyone around them would be turning toward them with kindness and compassion and telling them that they deserve the resources they need to get rest and to eat nutritious food and to care for themselves and to be cared for. Um, but we, we don't live in that world. We do live in a society where some people are told that they are not only entitled to the givers, but in fact, they are morally obliged to take. Um, and that puts a lot of pressure on both the human beings and the human givers. And it creates a dynamic where human giver syndrome 
becomes a toxic and dangerous thing. And for women, this can look like feeling a moral obligation to be at all times pretty, happy, yet calm, generous, <laughs> and attentive to the needs of others. And if at any time you fail in your moral obligation to be at all times pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others, then you are a failure. And as a failure, you deserve to be punished. And even if there's no one else around to punish us, we will go ahead and punish ourselves. And the last symptom that perhaps um, you're living in, a t in an environment of people feeling entitled to what you have to give is that you feel like this is just normal and true. Of course I feel this way. Of course. It is my obligation to exist in the world as a tube of toothpaste, to be squeezed until empty and then discarded. Um, and uh, a lot of us kind of feel like that's just normal and true. Um, and that's human giver syndrome as applied as opposed to being just like being a human giver and thriving in a community of givers who all care about each other. Um, so what that looks like for women is super dangerous. Um, I will let you point me in the direction of how okay. to continue with that idea. Well, because, you know, if we are, if this human, the human giver syndrome, if we're feeling this, and I think a lot of women are feeling this at some yes. degree, um, and how do we, you know, pull away from that? How do we break that cycle? How can we still be givers, but not be a victim? I hate, I even hate to use the word victim, but be um, swept up into this idea that you have to give at all costs because we want to give, we want to be compassionate and loving beings and have that society where we're showing others how we can live and breathe and be in community, but we don't want to overgive self-sacrifice and be the martyr. Yeah, it is. I mean, ironically and unfortunately, a giver has to like break free from it on their own cognitively and tell themselves that they deserve to, you know, have resources for themselves. But ideally, it's other givers who help us unlearn human giver syndrome um, by turning towards us and like making it happen that we receive resources and care and time and love and all the things that are not um, scarce. They're, they're made to feel scarce by the external world, but they're, they're, they're not. Um, um, so if that's really hard that to make that, love. again, so that, it's the bubble of love. That's yeah. exactly right. But uh, if you're having a struggle with that, or even just like accepting care from other people or really believing that you're allowed, um, to accept care and that you deserve care. The number one step that Emily and I discovered was so helpful was learning to recognize who in our lives acts as a giver and who in our lives acts like they're entitled to our time, our lives, and our bodies. And if we can recognize who the human beings are, we can kind of divest the importance that we ascribe to that relationship because it can feel like that's one of the most important relationships in your life because it conforms to this dynamic that is so broad. Um, but if we can kind of divest ourselves from this notion that that person matters and holds our lives in our hands and um, that person does not, in fact, they are not entitled to our time and our lives and our bodies, even though they believe not only that they are entitled, but that they are required to pursue 
that entitlement and take as much as they can from you and um, and focus more energy on interacting with and valuing the relationships with the givers in your life. Did that make sense? It makes total sense to divest from those that are, you know, expecting and that you give to them uh, really out of balance to what you're receiving from them. So you just start to spend more time with those that are the givers so that you get to experience the practice of receiving and being well nourished by those people. And so I think, yeah. Yeah. And so when you're really nourished and well fed, you actually can actually understand the dynamics even more has been my experience. Exactly. Your body learns what it feels like to be safe and cared for. And it doesn't feel scary to indulge in the luxury of a full night's sleep. Now it's like, Oh, this is just what I need. Okay. And you know, uh, just talking about that yeah. full night of sleep, you, I mean, I love that you definitely point out rest in your book because that I oh, yeah. speak to this with my clients all the time. We always start with rest. I have a three-tiered approach and like rest is the first stage. And in your book, you talk about, um, you have this famous quote, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah, yeah. And we all have been hearing that, but you challenge us by saying that it's not what uh, doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's rest that actually makes us stronger. Right. Because the thing that didn't kill you harmed you, harmed you deeply. And if you never have a chance to heal from that, you did not get stronger. (laughs) The only way to heal from that is to is to rest what was wounded and give it what it needs to heal, you know, especially rest. And because that's always the first thing that any medical provider will tell you when you have an injury, you need to rest whatever limit is, etc, etc. Yeah, it's. Rest is featured in chapter one, which is about completing the stress response cycle, because rest, especially sleep, can accomplish that. But rest also gets its own chapter because there are so many ways to rest. There is literal sleep, but there's also daydreaming, mindful eating and cooking. Um, so many, and I don't know which, how many or which ones you want to talk about. Gosh, they are so many. But yeah. I really just want to point out that I want to read this real quick. It says, um, rest is quite simply when you stop using a part of you that's used up, worn out, damaged, or inflamed so that it has a chance to renew itself. And it doesn't just mean sleep, though, of course, sleep is essential. It includes switching from one type of activity to another. So mental energy like stress has a cycle it runs through, an oscillation from task focus to processing and back to task focus. So not you don't have to using grit or self-control to move through something isn't supporting you it's actually stepping back and taking a moment to rest that is where you get your what i call the point of power back and rest like you mentioned can be simply moving your body in a different way it can be breathing um so many different things so i just want women to understand that when you have a really super busy life that you can have restful moments that get you out of the stress cycle that you're in which i thought was brilliant in your book yeah yeah no, I heard you read that and say, wow, we really nailed that. We really You did. It. Good job. What a good book that is. Good, good for me. Actually, I think Emily wrote that paragraph, but still, good for us. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I think celebration is also a key to us breaking out of that stress cycle. Like, oh, wow. Like when you hear or see something you've done, like celebrate. Like you did a really good <laughs> job. You guys did a great job. And then you break out of that. Oh, it's not enough or it wasn't good enough. And I could have done yeah. better. Um, so I think that's beautiful that you could acknowledge, wow, we did a really good job on that. 
And you know, I was like, yes, that's exactly what I wanted to say. Oh, right. I already said it that way. You already said it. (laughs) Done. Job here is done. Um, So, you know, we were talking about some of the damage that can happen through uh, this idea that we have to give of ourselves and we have to look a particular way and act a particular way. And one of the things that has been really damaging is something that you speak of in the book called the bikini industrial complex. (laughs) And so please, I mean, I was reading this and I was kind of, uh, I was like, yes, that's so true. And then I was blown away by your explanation of the BMI chart, which is the body mass index chart, which so many of us have heard about um, and tried to fit into. Even our our doctors or healthcare providers yeah. try to fit us into it. And you're yeah. like, no, that's another thing that's bullshit. So yeah, tell it's us a more lie. about it. <laughs> it's yeah. a lie. I, Emily has a PhD in health sciences, and even she was shocked to learn this, which uh, is information we first got from the book Health at Every Size by Lindo Bacon. Um, And in that book, they describe the process of the invention of the BMI chart. It was created by a panel of nine people, seven of whom profit directly from the weight loss industry. So the BMI chart with these labels was not based on science. It was based on propaganda for selling people products and services related to lowering their BMI. Um, It is just a ratio of height to weight, and it means literally nothing. And yet, it's been invented by this panel, this propaganda, piece of propaganda that is now used by health insurance companies to determine who is more worthy of certain kinds of care. Like, here's a very extreme example. Back when the initial flood of of COVID hospitalizations was happening and there was a lack of, of ventilators, one of the factors that went into deciding who got a ventilator and who didn't was BMI. So you might be more likely to die of COVID because you have more fat on your body, um, not because the fat on your body makes you more susceptible to illness, but because the system constructed around using the BMI chart as a, as a thing that makes you more likely to live or not, um, th- um, that, that disenfranchised you from, from receiving healthcare, which, um, Oh, I'm so, so very angry about that. And then they were like, well, if you're, if you're fat, you're more likely to die from COVID. And I was like, yeah, okay. So can we factor in the fact that fat people have a much harder time receiving adequate healthcare because, because the BMI chart, all of their illnesses are blamed on the fat on their bodies instead of actual facts about it. There's an established known bias called scientific weightism where scientists scientists are just like because they've been indoctrinated to this multi-billion dollar weight loss industry they've been indoctrinated into that diet culture um they just assume fat bad and therefore the person in front of you who has fat on their body therefore that is their problem they have a cold because they have fat on their body they sprain their ankle because they have fat on their body they like oh my god Ooh, it makes me so mad. The thing that really busted my gut when it came time to apply this information um, is when I was teaching college and I had this incoming class, a little freshman, and I was trying to, you know, when you're teaching singing, the first place you start is breathing. And I'm working with college students on breathing, even working with like nine-year-olds in my children's choir. They hold their stomachs in and they 
gasp in and they hold their stomachs in and all the breath only goes up into their chest and their shoulders rise up and that has nothing to do with their breathing. When you breathe, your breath is supposed to go down in your body. Okay, your actual breath stays in your lungs, but in order for your lungs to expand, the squishy stuff inside you has to get pushed out of the way. So that diaphragm in the middle of your body pushes down on all your like squishy organs, all the viscera in your abdomen. And so your abdomen expands outward except that you have an abdominal wall, muscles that can be hardened and tightened, and to hold all the squishy stuff in tight, and then it has nowhere to go, so then the breath has nowhere to expand down into. And I'm trying to teach these freshman college women that they need to release their abdominal muscles, they need to let their belly expand, and they literally cannot. They don't know how to manifest the coordination in their body to let their bellies expand because they have been trained by diet culture, um, by so-called fitness culture, which is a lie. Um, it's not about fitness, it's about thinness, and thinness is about obedience, and obedience is what the society requires from women, and increasingly from men, as, as the weight loss industry discovers, they've got another whole, like, half of the population to profit from. I have started ranting again, I realize. I um, love it. Okay. <laughs> Go, Amelia. <laughs> no, I love it all because it's just, I think, I hope this the women that are listening to this are really having their minds blown because it's not, you know, what you just said, it's not um, about, you know, fitness, it's about thinness. And you're really touching on about how being thin is another privilege, just as race and gender and class is in our society and how this yep. is feeding in and really hurting um, a lot of people in our culture that are not fitting in and are not being able to be controlled Bye. And in a lot of ways, it's physically fitting in. The infrastructure of the world is designed for people who are smaller than average. So anyone who's average or larger physically doesn't fit in the world through turnstiles, in seats, etc. So it's the whole world is built to exclude anyone of size. I think you even touched upon that in the book about how airplane seats are getting smaller. And it's, you know, I, I'm fairly thin. I'm really tall and um, for and but I find it really difficult to sit in those seats. And I don't even couldn't even imagine how hurtful and harmful that is for someone just wanting to simply travel, how difficult that can be. Like you said, turnstiles and, and it's just that constant stress that you experience by just being in your own body. And yeah. how that can, you know, that chronic stress is what we're talking about here is what builds and builds and builds to those uh, symptoms of burnout or actually being burnt out. And so how, oh, I'm trying to feel into like the, the enormity of all of this mm -hmm. and like, where, where do we start really with this? And I think what you've touched on so far is, and there's many things in the book as well, is finding that community, that bubble of love, um, starting to understand who's taking more of you than um, they're giving and, and divesting from them nurturing yourself in the with, around the people that are willing to give to you as much as you're willing to give to them but what other ways can we start to and also just understanding like informing ourselves like okay the bmi chart is just a, is a lot i don't know it's a, a profiteering yeah. uh tool and so it's through that education as well but what other things do you think that women should know like what's something else that they should 
could do to, to take their power back? Uh, thing number one is to know that you are exactly the size you need to be right now. You don't have to lose weight or conform to a specific body shape or size before you deserve love and care, including adequate medical care. Um, Emily and I play what we call the new hotness game. Um, that's a thing that I started because I took a picture of myself in a dressing room mirror and went, oh, new hotness, because I was wearing like the largest size dress they made in that particular boutique. And I was like, damn, I actually look, I look awesome in the largest size dress they make at this boutique. Um, and so just we started sending each other pictures back and forth when we were even when we were uncertain that what we looked like was going to conform and be adequate for approval. We just take the picture and say new hotness and new hotness just means deserving of love in the face in of pressure to conform i actually have a song about the new hotness game um but i will also say in the meantime whether we decide that we have time for me to sing another song um is that uh if you have a social media feed of any kind if you're following anyone who makes you feel inadequate or like they're better than you or and you think you're following because you think they're like motivating for you to change um delete those people from your feed right away <laughs> uh, because the idea you. that shaming yourself is going to motivate you to feel better nope shame doesn't do good things for anybody shame is shame is dangerous and uh, i encourage you only to follow people on social media who make you feel like who you are right now is good enough and deserves care. And if you want to change the size or shape of your body, great. You can do that to whatever extent is realistic. Um, you should know that the the stories of people changing their weight permanently in one direction or another are are mostly just lies. Um, but I really yeah, so appreciate you mentioning that. Like, do not follow people that are making you feel bad as a way of motivating you. That not to move from fear or FOMO or fear or um, body shaming or any type of shaming whatsoever. And I've been, I've, you know, been noticing this because I'm moving more into what's the more feminine approach to business or supporting women and not doing the whole, those, all of those tactics of, oh, if you can pinpoint the pain, then you can make yourself seem like the solution. And that's just a toxic tactic that so many people are using now and said, like, Who's making you feel good? Who's truly inspiring you and making you feel your your greatness in this moment for who you are and follow them because that will be one of the biggest, most empowering things we can do to really shift out of this toxic paradigm. And I really want to honor your time because, Amelia, you were uh, very upfront with me when I reached out to you about being on the show and you know, you've suffered from long COVID and you let me know that doing a full show would be really um, would be taxing on you, and we've kind of gone past our point for the second break. So I'm actually do, doing okay. I think you're. I think you're doing fabulous. But I I'm doing want, better than average, so this is good. <laughs> so, but I do want to make sure that you feel really nourished, and if you feel at any point in time that we, you know, you want to exit the show that you've reached your max, you let me know because we are up to our second break. I want to um, sing the new hotness song when we get back, maybe. Okay, let's do that. So we're going to be right back after this short break. So don't go anywhere because you're going to get to experience the hotness song. <laughs> we'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 
Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Women, are you tired of chasing after your dreams? Exhausted and overwhelmed from trying so hard to have the perfect life? Do you yearn for more ease, freedom, and time to explore what is near and dear to your heart, yet have no idea how to stop pushing forward? Join your host, Lindsay McCowan, and others like you on a journey to awaken the divine feminine. When you awaken the divine feminine, you awaken parts of yourself that have been ignored, lay dormant, put on the back burners, or forgotten. When you fully ignite these aspects of yourself, you awaken your ability to thrive in all areas of your life, including relationships, finances, health, career, and purpose. You stop chasing after life and step into an easeful, magnetic flow. You become the magnet that effortlessly attracts joy, love, space to play, abundance, and magic that illuminates your life. Does that sound like the future you? Go to lindsay.tv goddess to sign up today. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You're listening to Women Thriving Unapologetically with Lindsay McCowan. Have a question for Lindsay or her guests? Want to share your story? Email Lindsay at thrivingunapologetically at gmail.com. That's thrivingunapologetically at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Here again is Lindsay. Hello and welcome back to Women Thriving Unapologetically. We're here with Amelia Nagoski and we are getting ready to hear another song from Amelia. Yeah. yeah. It's the new hotness song. The and it's about song. the game of, you know, trying to exist in the world as someone whose body does not conform to the socially constructed ideal. And may I say, no one's body conforms to the socially constructed ideal. Literally no one. So it goes like this. We're lovable and lovely, but facing the world takes nerve. Cause the world has views on who we are and tells us what we deserve. But there's some swears in this song, but fuck that noise, the world is wrong. And here's your true theme song. You're the new hotness. She's the new hotness. I'm the new hotness. We're all the new hotness. Everyone is struggling. No one is immune. The less you conform to the socially constructed ideal, the greater is your doom. Regardless of health or wealth or stealth, your body is yours and hotness just means deserving of love in the face of pressure to conform the world will be safer for everybody when all of us can sing along you're the new hotness she's the new hotness i'm the new hotness we're all the new hotness you're the new hotness she's the new hotness i'm the new hotness we're all the new hotness 
I so wanted to sing along, but I have insecurities about singing. I know you told me this right before we started the show. We're all singers. I'm like, honey, you ain't heard me sing. But <laughs> I don't <laughs> but need to. I know. But it's the same thing with um, uh, Liz Gilbert always says, we're all writers. I'm like, okay, we're all singers. We're all writers. We're all artists, creatives. Uh, we all have was, the potential. We all have the potential. And that was incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that, that, that we are the new hotness, that we do not need to conform. And it's impossible to conform like, to this ideal, you know, I'm going to do air quotes, of what we should look like because it's just another tactic and tool to try to get us to buy stuff we don't need. And to keep yeah. us, and that's keep us small. And the smaller keep us we small are, and in our places, and feeling like we don't deserve to have a voice, or be seen, or be cared for, until we have done the work ourselves of trying to be what other people say we have to be. Even though there is n literally no science that says that being thinner makes you healthier. Um, do the behaviors that they tell us to do, like eating vegetables and getting some exercise like are those things good for us sure they could be unless you're you know like i have long covid and if i exercise if i go for a 10 minute mosey through my yard to go pet my dog on the far side of the yard i end up in bed for three days afterward with post-exertional malaise so like any advice about how to be healthy um is is not for everyone. So unfortunately, we got to take on the work of discovering what makes us feel our best. Thank you for that. Like take on what feels best to you and what makes you feel you're like you're thriving. And so I'd love to we're nearing the end of the show. So I would love to hear from you. What does thriving unapologetic mean to you, Amelia? I love to define terms. <laughs> this is like one of my favorite things. So when we talk about thriving, that makes me go back to in the book, how we define wellness. Um, wellness is the freedom to oscillate through all the cycles of being human. Um, and what that means, you know, being well is not a thing you just like achieve and then stay there. Uh, it's not what you believe about yourself or your environment. It's a state of action. And when I say action, I don't mean it's a thing you have to do all the time. Freedom is a thing that is taken and received from the world around you. You can't have freedom if the world tells you you don't deserve freedom. So being well is having the freedom, both by your own volition and by permission of the world around you, to cycle from stress to safety, from activity to rest, from uh, autonomy to connection. Um, that freedom is wellness. And I would say that thriving is not having any restrictions that prevent you from being able to do that, where you have to take on extra work in order to achieve those free oscillations. Um, and unapologetically, I think goes back to what you were saying, human giver syndrome, human giver syndrome is the thing that makes us feel like we need to apologize. Oh, I'm sorry, I need sleep. I'm sorry, I have to eat food today. I'm sorry that I need time off to spend with my kids. I, I know I'm a burden to the world around me because I, I don't deserve resources for myself. I have to be pretty happy, calm, generous and attentive to the needs of others at all times. I know that's my moral obligation. So I think overcoming human giver syndrome and 
remembering that you deserve care and you deserve love just as you are, that you are already enough. That's where the unapologetic comes from. Oh, thank that you was so much. a lot of words. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, uh, no, no, no apologies necessary because it's a beautiful, beautiful explanation. And I appreciate oh my God, I just honest. apologized for, okay. That's okay. <clears throat> it's a ha- sometimes it's a habit, but we are yeah, at the yeah. end of the show. So I really appreciate you being with us for the full length of the show and sharing so much of uh, yourself and your time and your energy and your wisdom and you can reach Amelia on her online home at burnoutbook.net. I would highly recommend getting the book. There's so many things that we didn't have time to talk about today on this show, but definitely get the book and read through it and connect with her on her online home and listen to the show again and again. So you can listen to both songs and uh, sing along. And <laughs> if and if you are a lover of this show and just consider being a sponsor or supporter of Women Thriving Unapologetically. It is our mission to provide a global platform for women to expand their reach and share their messages and work. And each show aims to inspire, support, and equip women to reach their highest potential and step into their power to lead, love, work, and live unapologetically. And we're reaching up to 40 countries now. So reach out to me at thrivingunapologetically at gmail.com and we'll talk about how we can work together to make it happen because women rise and thrive together. So thank you so much and many, many blessings and much love to all of you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Women Thriving Unapologetically. We hope we've inspired you to claim your birthright to thrive. Tune in next week where we will continue to give you the tools you need to flourish, prosper, and thrive. Until then, have a beautiful week.